0: And so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country.
1: My fellow Americans, welcome back to the Inspired Service Podcast. I'm Noah Scheinbaum, and I'm joined today by Eng Pottinger, who is the Senior Lab Advisor for ICAP at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. She's also become a friend and colleague in the battle against COVID-19 and has an incredible, very interesting background, previously at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and really working around the world to identify and combat the spread of all sorts of viruses. Eng, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us.
0: Thanks, Noah. I'm very happy to be here with you today.
1: Eng, is this something that you saw coming? Did you think in December of 2020 that we would all be socially distant and masked up in public, and watching a death toll that is rising and an incidence count that is rising from one of the worst pandemics in the last few centuries.
0: I, I did not foresee a December like we're having now, but I've been a virologist for a very long time. And as anyone in my family can tell you, I really, really love viruses over things like bacteria and parasites. And I have often predicted that a virus would come along and wreak havoc on our society, and it would be unpredictable, and it could end up being very terrible. And that's you know, what COVID has done to our daily lives here in America and in much of the world. But it sure, it sure feels a bit surreal. Like we're watching the movie Contagion play out, but not in two hours, but over the course of a year.
1: Yeah, I think Contagion has been trending on Netflix now for, for something like nine straight months, which is <laughs> like probably all you need to know about the, the psyche <laughs> of the American people.
0: I was at CDC when the movie was filmed and it was not picked to be an extra, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, no. Well
1: so let's let's talk about this for a second cuz first of all you just are probably one of the few people left in America if not the world who would still say now that they love viruses. Sure. That's a pretty remarkable claim. And you, you know so what is it that you do in your day job that has that has generated this love for this strange unseen thing that has completely changed our lives.
0: I'll start first with why I love viruses. Viruses is defined as an obligate intracellular organism. And basically what that means is when it's, you know, as it exists as a virus particle. So that picture of coronavirus you always see when it's by itself, it's not alive in and of itself. It can't do anything. It needs you. It needs a host. And then once it gets in, it's brilliant. It has all of the genetic code to take over your cells when it gets inside right? So it's not alive until it gets into you. But once it gets into you, it takes over all of your machinery with one purpose in mind, and it's to replicate, it's to make millions and millions of copies of itself. And I think that's pretty remarkable that this tiny little thing that's not alive has this huge life cycle that, you know, on one hand can be, you know, not harmful to its host. And on the other hand, which we're seeing this year, of course, is to you know, entirely destroy our society in a short amount of time, you know, based on whether or not we're prepared for it. So in my day job, I'm actually an an HIV virologist. I spent almost a decade at CDC working on PEPFAR projects. And PEPFAR is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, which was started under George W. Bush. It's his greatest legacy piece and has had a massive, massive impact on the HIV epidemic here in the U.S. and really, you know, in Africa and other hard hit places, we've made major, major strides in HIV. And I spent most of my time at CDC working on PEPFAR projects. And I spend about half my time now, I'm at Columbia, uh, ICAP, in the Mailman School of Public Health. And we are an implementing partner for CDC and other US government organizations to really implement, you know, the vision of CDC's programs to be the hands-on, on the ground kind of worker to get to get the data done or the implementation of clinical programs serving people infected with HIV. So that's what I do in my day job.
1: So you're spending so much time working on and learning about and really studying kind of the nature of certainly HIV, one of the most prolific and, and devastating viruses in, in many ways. But where did this drive or this interest or this curiosity for viruses come from? Why viruses?
0: So I, in high school, I really loved chemistry and I thought I would be a chemist. So I went to college. I was at McGill University and I was in the chemistry program and realized that that wasn't the right calling and started to take biochemistry classes. And I, I was never interested in things like cancer. I just thought this is going to sound terrible, but it took too long to like impact the host. <laughs> viruses are much more efficient, they get the job done. And things like tuberculosis take a very long time to grow in laboratories. Something about the, the mechanism of how viruses work, how they infect, how they replicate. HIV is especially brilliant. It attacks the cells that you use to attack the virus. It integrates itself into your genome. So once you're infected, you can't get rid of it. I mean, if you think about it on just you know pure evolutionary, uh, level. That's kind of brilliant, right? That's why HIV is so enduring and why we can't find a vaccine and why we can't cure, you know, quote unquote, cure people from it. It's because once it's in you, it's in you, it's in, it's in your cell. So when your cells replicate, it replicates the genome of the virus itself. So all of this together for me was fascinating. That's where it all began.
1: It's clear you have a deep intellectual curiosity for the inner workings of these kind of devastating little things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's interesting because sometimes you'll talk to folks who are, who go into medicine and, and, you know, they'll see the impact of those things and they'll, they'll want to go into how do I treat patients? How do I, you know, do all those things, but you, you took a bit of a different path, right? You're focused on almost the, the existence and the spread of the, of the, the virus, of the pathogen itself. I'm curious, was that ever a consideration? Like, did you weigh medical school or, or kind of being a, a doctor versus being a, a, um, a virologist and someone who studies kind of the particle itself?
0: Yeah. So I thought I wanted to be a doctor when I was younger, but then realized that I might not have all the skills needed to be a doctor, bedside manner. I don't like blood in that, in that sense. It doesn't make me pass out, but not my preferred, you know, way. Um, and I, I, I thought,
1: I saw (laughs) I I think I saw a catheter in a nursing home when I was like eight years old and knew that medicine was never It wasn't for you. You
0: you just know it's either a calling or it's not right? right And um, I thought okay I really do want to help people like with the same goal as doctors But how can I go about it in a slightly different way? and so when I Got to grad school By then I was sure I was not meant to be a chemist, but I wanted to work on viruses and I thought well, maybe I want to develop a drug that would have an impact. And so I, I entered you know, a school of pharmacology and toxicology at UC Davis, and I joined an HIV lab mixing my love for viruses and my love of can I find a compound, and, and that fit well with my chemistry background. Um, And so I worked on how do you find an entry inhibitor? And you you hear all about this step with coronavirus. It's that part, you know, the spike protein, that little red thing that's hanging off of the picture of coronavirus you see everywhere. When it attaches to its host cell, the the mechanism in which it attaches and then fuses to the cell membrane um, and enters the cell was my area of focus in grad school. Um, And then when I left grad school, I knew that I didn't want to be in academia. I didn't want to have a lab with grad students. It just wasn't my calling either because it didn't have an impact. It didn't feel like I was going to, you know, do anything that was going to affect the lives of people infected with HIV. So my, my calling and my true love was always to get to CDC. And I think anyone in public health has always felt like CDC was the end all of public health if you got there you, that was that was a dream job and when I got to cDC certainly i i love i absolutely love and believe in the mission of the agency and I only left because of life changes but CDC for me and continues to be i still work with all my cdc colleagues is is the leader in public health, and you know we can talk about it more under this administration what the struggles of the past year and, and the things it's endured and some of the errors that the agency itself has made along the way in combating COVID, which are, I think are, you know, valid criticisms. Uh, it, has, it has diminished the agency, but for me, I still think is the leader in public health.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because every American in some way, every, everyone around the world in some mm-hmm. ways become kind of an armchair public health commentator over the last <laughs> nine months, right? Everyone's, We're all critics everyone's a critic and we all have our own perspective on kind of what's, what we should do or we shouldn't do. I'm super curious, right? You were in many ways, you grew through your career with that, with that agency. Mm -hmm. When you kind of in the early days, as this started was the feeling like, okay, it's here what was what was different than kind of what you expected to see from the CDC as this thing rolled out and and I'm not even you know you you can plan and you can plan and you can plan and then reality hits
0: yeah and while i was at cdc we spent a lot of time planning in the george w bush time we planned pandemic flu we had tons of exercises throughout the agency, standing up, the emergency operations center, all of these things under Dr. Julie Gerberding. And then when Tom Frieden came in as the director, we then did all of this other, you know, pandemic planning. And then there was Ebola and all of this happening. And it gave people a sense of confidence there that they could and had all the tools to combat pandemics and and virus outbreaks. And, you know, dealing with a pandemic in three countries, in Western Africa is certainly a different beast entirely than dealing with, you know, a pandemic, a respiratory pandemic on your own soil. And it it made very clear that we were not equipped to do that. But it wasn't just CDC, right? Like it was a system-wide failure across our government. Our our stockpiles were not stocked with PPE and, and all the things you need for first responders. I mean, there were so many pieces missing. And we had poured tens of millions of dollars into this pandemic planning piece. Under the Ebola outbreak, they gave hundreds of millions of dollars for pandemic planning. We clearly, clearly did not meet the moment. You know, really the, the difficult part for me as someone who loves the agency and, and is looking in from the outside now is watching the initial, you know, if you if go back to the early stages in February, when we were trying to diagnose people. And, and then around the same time, there was the ban on Chinese travelers. We still didn't have a, a test, a diagnostic test that other labs other than CDC could, could perform. And so we were missing these early infections. And you see these stories now about how teams have gone back to look at samples collected back in December, early January. There was COVID in our community, but we, we failed. We, we ultimately failed at picking them up because we didn't have a test kit that could be used at our public health labs. And more importantly, we just didn't bring in our commercial companies to help develop a commercially available test. Um, And even though there was one at the time, we didn't purchase it. So I think that was one of the first missteps in the agency's year.
1: I I want to go back before we move past this part of the conversation. You talk about your true love. Your calling was to get to the CDC. Mm -hmm. So much of this, so many of these things, right? Whether it's a test kit or whether it's um, vaccines or, or really anything, so much of this is developed in partnership with or wholly by private companies. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't on your radar. Say a few more words about why. Well, what why was was commercial industry not the path for you?
0: Thank you for this question. I figured that if I got to CDC and developed a test kit, a drug. I could implement it quickly. And that was always my, the crux of my decision-making was where can I go that would have a more immediate impact. So when I left grad school, besides realizing I didn't want to go to academia, the other thing I realized is I didn't want to go into industry and join a bio, you know, pharmaceutical company was because it would take too long to, you know, discover a compound, see it through and actually out to patients I mean, that process can be 10 plus years. And I was like, this is just not going to work out. I'm not going to be able to have the impact I, I want to have. And so when I joined CDC, I first joined the domestic HIV group and felt in a similar way was things weren't moving there. And so I switched over to the global HIV program and that was funded totally under PEPFAR. And my supervisor, his name is Dr. Bharat Perek, just this genius of a man who who understood that in HIV, part of understanding the epidemic is one, being able to diagnose people correctly, and two, being able to know how many new infections there are. So he's like really the father of HIV incidence testing, and that's measuring people who are newly infected. So this is a, a totally different notion than what most people are used to. So, like, if you go to the doctor and you get tested for any disease. It'll just tell you if you are infected or if you're not infected. What I worked on while I was at CDC was to develop a test that tells you how long have you been infected with HIV. So after you've been positively diagnosed, you would run that same sample on the test that we worked on, and it would tell you basically if you were infected in the last year or not. And that helps not on the clinical management side, but really on the surveillance and programming side so that we understand then who is being infected? Is it young girls? Is it older men? Is it, you know, so we get demographics. Is it some kind of geographical association with new infections? This test has become the global standard for measuring HIV incidence. There was a lot of fuss about it at the beginning, but I think everyone's kind of recognizing that it's the best test commercially available, and it's used all across the world now as the gold standard for measuring HIV incidence in a population. So that was my view. Going into CDC was how can I do something that will have an impact quickly?
1: I love the idea that speed was the key determinant for you, and you chose the government. It's 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 super interesting, right? Because generally people talk about, you know, if you want to move fast, you go industry, private sector, startups. Yeah. You're saying I want to have impact and I want to do it now. CDC seemed orders of magnitude faster than what you could get through in the private sector.
0: Because I, the I, private sector doesn't have influence on necessarily on like ministries of health in Zimbabwe or Zambia, right? It's a government to government. It's, it's faith and trust in, in a working partnership that companies don't necessarily have with these governments to allow for, for policy changes or implementation of health programs. In recognizing that, I totally knew that CDC was, was the way to go.
1: No, it, it makes perfect sense. If you're dealing in the realm of policy, or, or you know, at a at a state level, state to state is going to be quicker, more expedient. It's an important nuance, and it, it's a reminder that it's not just paint by numbers here. Right. <laughs> Private sector fast, government slow. <laughs> kind of depends on on what we're talking about. So I. I Appreciate uh, that point. One more thing before we move off of this particular topic. PEPFAR, you mentioned one of President Bush's kind of signature lasting legacy pieces. I think he's said a number of times, it's probably the thing that he is proudest of while president. For those who who are less familiar with the program, why are we as Americans, so concerned and so focused on combating HIV and AIDS around the world? Why are we not just focused on doing that here at home?
0: So to be fair, we do do that here at home. We outspend PEPFAR domestically on a per-HIV patient capita, by far, orders of magnitude. But PEPFAR, for whatever it is, has orders of magnitude of returns on, on its investment. We just focus on PEPFAR. Everyone's familiar with, with Dr. Brooks now, but she has been at the helm of PEPFAR since 2014. And, and she was my direct supervisor while I was at CDC. She ran our division, understood that we need to use our money wisely. The American people don't want their taxpayer funds to be just dished out and unaccounted for, right? We don't, we're not a grant program. We're just not giving money out. We wanted to give money out to partners, local implementing partners, other implementing partners like Columbia, and and be accountable for our money. They're asking us to provide treatment to this many people in this country. You know, we need to be accountable and to show that we've completed that. So there was always a feedback, a data feedback system, and working hand-in-hand with ministries of health to make ministries and country governments invest in their own program. I think that was key. Originally when PEPFAR started, it was just so much money and we we were giving out tons of money and and it wasn't matching epidemics. And so now the funds we we do use in countries match the epidemic that is there. So if, if a country has, let's just say a million infections, it's going to have more money than a country with 100,000 infections. And that wasn't always necessarily true before, but it is, certainly is now. And to make sure we have buy-in and and have have country investment too. So it's not just PEPFAR giving into HIV programs, it's governments putting budget lines in and making sure that they invest in their own country program as well.
1: We've talked to a number of folks in different functions who have been involved in what you could call the big development umbrella uh, Mm -hmm. writ large. And, And the arguments are sometimes muddled or lost as to why this is something worth doing. But the Really, it comes back to, I think, and you, and you said it precisely, it's, it's a return on investment. If you invest wisely and improve in interventions at the point of impact, you can have disproportionate results.
0: And, and to just add on to that, I think the American people are very generous people, right? Like we, we have the means to have an impact on millions, millions of people's lives through PEPFAR. You know, it's a form of soft diplomacy in terms of, you know, if you think about it that way, it costs a lot less certainly than selling weapons to countries and, and all of that kind of diplomacy. But it's it's really the goodwill of the American people that PEFAR is here, is still here. And it is one of the few pieces of legislation that is very bipartisan, supported by Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, we, we've we been very lucky that that's the case. We haven't lost funding. You know, we we aren't at risk of losing funding, because I think our our house members recognize that this is an important program and we do good work. It's not wasted money at all.
1: So picking up on that idea of the, the goodwill and the generosity of the American people, I'm gonna take us out of kind of the international domain and bring us back to the to the present day here. And even over the last nine months, you've kind of been in a, in a pretty interesting position where you've known what this could look like, seen it coming, and then even once it comes, acknowledging that we didn't necessarily have, have all the tools and preparations we thought. As you think about since February and March when this arrived on on our shores here, at least that we knew about, What have you seen that has encouraged you? What have you seen that makes you optimistic about our ability to respond to pandemics and to crises like this, both now and in the future?
0: Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, as terrible as the pandemic has been, there are certainly bright spots. We got to see, we certainly saw a lot of people or a lot of things fail but we also got to see some things shine. In light of the topic of our podcast here, we got to see lots of citizens who in their daily lives decide that they wanted to do something to help get PPE, to make masks. I mean, there were lots of selfless acts throughout this entire thing. And beyond, of course, our first line healthcare workers who are unbelievable and brave in every way, the average citizen, many people just decided that their community needed to be supported. So I the bright spot for me, there's two here. For all the failings or criticisms of our federal government, there were certainly individuals who pushed forward on what they thought was the best way forward in, in combating this virus. And I'll give you an example, and it has to do with the vaccines there were certainly a lot of people in the administration who thought that the vaccine work would come secondary like it normally would you would make a vaccine after you know we we got the initial peak under control we we would we would fund that later but there were certainly visionaries and, and advocates that pushed and said, no, we need money, we need to start vaccine work as early as February to do it concurrently with any other kind of response that we had. And that, frankly, is how we got to where we are today. With with Moderna on the brink of approval and Pfizer being approved last week, Vice President Pence said that this was a a, a modern miracle. And it's, it's not, it's actually scientists. <laughs> scientists got to work and they work their asses off. And, and that's how we're here. That's how we have a vaccine within the same year as the pandemic is because people just used all of their skills. And that to me is the, the brightest spot of all was that scientists got to work. They opened up their research. I mean, you can see early on, I know that you and I spent a lot of time talking about this, but you know, the, the people putting up their research findings before it was peer reviewed, and there's certainly criticism of that, but early on, this was extremely important to see what people were finding quickly because the peer review process in a journal can take anywhere from one to three months. So the scientists all decided for the good of humanity, they would just put their data up quickly without the, the piece of competition and secrecy that often is is prevalent, especially in academia. And I thought, and I still think that that's, that science was always going to save the day. And you, you will, if you ask my husband, he will tell you that I say that all the time that science will save the day and i think it will be true here as well
1: it wouldn't be here without science they they deserve all the credit and i think we have to acknowledge that the attention and the high level prioritization put on this mm-hmm. helped move some of the regulatory bodies and some of the the kind of the big machinery of of government to make this possible and and together you know enabling those scientists to do what they did in in truly record time mm-hmm. to criticize mm-hmm credibly, you've got to laud and appreciate appropriately. And I think Absolutely. this is just, this one's a win. <laughs> you know, this one's just... a
0: win. And, you know, for whatever your criticism or where you ever stand on the Trump administration, they pushed through Operation Warp Speed. They put money where it mattered. They said to companies, you work on the vaccine, developing it and making sure your manufacturing can make it once it's approved, right? Like, you can put out hundreds of millions of doses the minute it's approved. I think that that, you know, sh- exactly should be lauded because it took some vision. It took real guts to say, you know, if it costs us tens of billions of dollars, that's what it costs us. But let's let's not put our money behind one horse. Let's just put lots of money into it. It's going to be our saving grace at the end. And it, it truly, it will be. It will make 2021 much brighter.
1: I think we can all get behind a brighter 2021.
0: (laughs) It can't be darker.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, oh man. So, hey, on on this though, so while this was happening, right, scientists were doing their thing and and there was still, I mean, you and you were in the trenches and and we saw a lot of this in the day-to-day, almost like schizophrenic, Mm -hmm. lurching from crisis to crisis within the crisis of the flavor of the week, the focus of the day, find myself a little bit unsettled, but I'm not sure we solved. What, What should the posture be for PPE? What should the posture be for future testing? What should the posture be for contact tracing? Like, is that, mm-hmm. does it happen? Or did we just kind of get sick of it and move on to the next thing? You know, as you look across the board at some of these things that captured news cycles, that captured policymaker attention for, for moments in time, did we make progress? Do we have better answers? Are we better prepared for the next one?
0: I think on some things, yes. On the PPE front, I don't think we're there As long as our manufacturing of PPE relies on outsourcing it beyond our borders because it's cheaper and faster, whatever... And not investing in that at home, we're always going to be behind. If we can't make the PPE and stock our stockpiles, I think the goal was 300 million pieces of PPE or masks, and we're only at 90 or something. We still haven't stockpiled to manage this pandemic. So I'm not sure we're ready for the next one. And and I think we're going to have to make major investments here at home to make PPE at home and, and make it worthwhile for companies to make it here at home. The contact tracing, and I know you and I have spent a lot of time on contact tracing together. We is... solved the
1: whole thing in case anyone else is wondering,
0: <laughs> Right. In case you're wondering, we are very, very successful. <laughs> uh, you know, like here in the state of Utah, and, and I'm sure in many other places, they've given up on contact tracing. You cannot contact trace at the numbers we see new infections at. Mm. And the number of new infections being reported is an underrepresentation by all accounts because... When you take an antigen test at your doctor's office, that may or may not be reported. So it's an extreme undercount of true infections. And if you include in their asymptomatics as well, we can't contact trace. You know, even if the numbers were lower, the asymptomatic piece to this virus, which is what makes this virus so deadly and so effective in transmitting itself, and that's what's new with this virus versus all the other viruses we've seen, right? so as long as that's a factor contact tracing is going to be very very difficult we've totally failed at that i will say that there is one bright spot and it's new york city and and i only know this because i know of people who have been actively contact traced immediately once they were exposed to somebody when they got tested the department of health sent them packages i mean think about this when once someone got contact traced the next day it showed up at the doorstep was a package full of mass disinfectant wipes. I mean, isn't that amazing? So there are bright spots awesome. throughout the country where, where departments of health have taken up to fulfill the contact tracing mission, but other other places certainly um, we could have done better.
1: It's good to hear that some places are, are getting it right, but I think there's a bigger point to, to what you said there about you got to pick the right tool at the right time. And in mm-hmm. many ways, you know, this is just... Maybe it was, maybe never, but certainly now it's not, it's kind of the wrong tool at the Mm -hmm. wrong time. It's just Mm -hmm. not purpose fit for the mission that most states and localities are dealing with. So yeah, sure, if you go try to contact trace 300,000 new cases a day, <laughs> so you're, you're you're in for a bad time. That makes sense. Bang, I know we, we got to let you go here in a minute. I, I want to uh, maybe bring us back home. You, from the beginning of this conversation, have talked about the importance in finding a mission that is motivating to you, that you feel like you can personally affect in a positive way service seems to me to be really at the core of everything you've done and everything you continue to do. I'm curious, you know, looking forward, how do you see service continuing to play a role in your life? And how do we as a country need to think about service coming out of this pandemic where everybody is stressed and tired and, and fatigued and really just, I think, overwhelmed by by the circumstances.
0: That's a, a good question. You're right. Service has always been at the core of, of what I've wanted to do. I just—that's part of why I didn't go into industry. Also, was because I didn't think that the mission was pure enough. You know, you're you're serving board members and and stockholders and all of these things, and and that's why I always thought CDC was was a better fit because they were really out to serve just a mission of public health and having healthy populations and applying our expertise selflessly for that mission and i think going forward and i've always felt this way you know my husband's a marine he's worked in the administration we are we're very service oriented certainly in this house and i've had conversations with others about this including hr mcmaster who of course is your advisor on the us civilian corps about how we'd really like to see the us have a, a service program that that is you know not a requirement but something something like Teach for America, but for more than just teaching, right? To allow people to serve their communities and really feel a sense of Americanness, I guess you could say, or what it means to be an American and what it means to have responsibility to yourself, but also to your community and how we can support each other. And if there's ever a time we we really need to support each other, it's like this the tail, like the end of this year, you know, we're all in this dark place even resilient people are starting to feel not that resilient these days. And, and I think when we, when we are at the service of others, the generosity of it feeds back into us positively. And it makes us feel like we're accomplishing something and doing something that's good for someone other than ourself. And, and we're helping people. And I just can't see that as a bad thing. And so I, I certainly encourage people to reach out to communities to volunteer. And I, and I know that's hard right now because we're all quarantining at home. But there, there's certainly still ways I'm sure that we we can find a way to reach out to our community to make these dark days a little bit brighter. I really do wish in the future that we we have a service program that allows post high school Americans to participate in that that would allow. The sense of community and investment.
1: That's certainly something that, that we can get behind, too. And I know you all have had lots of experiences with General McChrystal, who I know supports mm-hmm. through all of his work, at, you know, Franklin Project and Service Year, and how we can make something like that a reality yes. here in, in our country. So, Ang, what a pleasure. Thank you so much uh, for, for everything that you've done this year and in your career, and that you continue to do on behalf of the country. And of course, thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us today to share your insight and expertise. I'm really grateful to you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure.
1: For more episodes of the Inspired Service podcast, please visit us at www.inspiredservice.org and subscribe on iTunes.